Hey, my name is Parker Manuel, pastor of Pinewood Church in Boulder, Colorado, where our mission is to meet people where they are and point them to Jesus. Hope you enjoy today's podcast. All right, we are continuing through the book of John, and today we're going to be looking at John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. We are going to be doing a little bit of a Bible study today. We're going to be going all over the place. So uh, be prepared to kind of jump around to a lot of passages. We're going to the Old Testament for a minute. And then, man, let's go. I love the OT. And then uh, the end, we're going to preach and bring it back and uh, give some opportunities for you to respond. Are you ready? Let's read this together. John chapter 8. Let's look at the first 11 verses. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Before we get in, you may be seeing at the top of it that it says, um, this, is, this passage is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts. Anybody have that in their Bibles? I have it in mine as well. So a uh, little preface before we dive in. What that means is this passage was not found in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have, but they are found in manuscripts and a lot of oral tradition. Some even say it was added later due to the scribes sharing throughout oral tradition. Uh, but even further than that, sometimes when this is found, it's not found in John. Sometimes it's found in other parts of the Bible as well, and sometimes omitted completely. But that the uh, scholars, when they came together, uh, felt that this was inspired scripture and felt that if it were to fit, it would best fit here. So if you see that in your Bible, does not mean, I do not believe it, that it means that it is not inspired. It means that those manuscripts were not found in the earliest that we have. So John 8, 1 through 11, let's do this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him. In order that they might find, in order that they might have evidence to accuse him, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go, from now on, do not sin anymore. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, set the scene a little bit. We have the Pharisees, yet again, another conflict with Jesus. 
This seems to be a theme so far as we're studying the book of John. Another conflict, and then in this conflict, they're trying to trap Jesus by leveraging a woman caught in adultery. Their hope for trapping Jesus, as you can tell, is dawn. He's surrounded by people. Their hope in trapping him is that he would be taken away to jail. And that he would be taken off guard in this moment and he would respond in a poor way. And we're going to talk about the only way he could have responded is the way that he did. They thought that they would trap him, but Jesus can't be taken off guard. And he cannot be taken off guard. Next, we have the woman. So that was the Pharisee's motive. Then we have the woman caught in the act fully exposed by being dragged into the streets, surrounded by literally everyone, peers, scribes, Pharisees, and then thrown into the center in front of Jesus. The setting that we have here, because they are bringing up both the moral law, the Jewish law, and the Roman law, the setting that we have here is that of a setting of a courtroom with Jesus at the center. So they bring her on trial in front of the Pharisees, in front of the scribes, and in front of Jesus, and they try to leverage her sin to discredit Jesus. Then Jesus responds, and after Jesus responds, something incredible happens. Everyone who came to accuse her and to discredit Jesus, one by one, dropped their stones. And one by one, left. Now she's one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, the true judge. Jesus shows mercy to her, and in addition to offering her mercy, grants her back her freedom. Here we see a contrast between the depravity and the sinfulness of humanity and the graciousness and the kindness of God. Both the public and private depravity that we see in the story here in trial. But then we see the very public graciousness and kindness of God. Title of today's message is Case Dismissed. Case Dismissed. Here Jesus is demonstrating in the midst of a complete mess of a situation, he's demonstrating absolute mercy. All right, let's look at first thing that we're going to look at today in the courtroom of Jesus is the mess that we find ourselves in. They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. And in this moment where they're expecting Jesus to respond, it says that he stoops low. Dr. Tony Evans says the accuser uses our sin to try and discredit Jesus. I believe that the same tactic that the enemy used then is the same tactic he uses now. I was actually even just yesterday looking at uh, somebody that I've been following for a while who is uh, really de destruct, I was going to say deconstructing and, uh, and, and destructing at the same time. I guess it's the same thing. So uh, deconstructing his faith and kind of walking away in many ways. And uh, one of the people asked him, uh, was it Jesus or was it the people as to why you're where you are. And he said, it's the people. That's exactly what the enemy loves to do. The enemy loves to uh, highlight the sin of humanity to discredit 
the authority of Jesus and the sovereignty of God. But it's not going to work. Here we get a catch-22 for Jesus. They try to catch him in a scenario where if he says, yes, we should stone her, which this is the Jewish law says that she must be stoned. But if he says yes to stoning her and following the Jewish law, then he would be breaking the Roman law because the Jews could not um, invoke capital punishment. That was of the Romans. In addition to that, if Jesus said, yes, stoner, then he would not be compassionate and he would not be showing mercy, the same compassion and mercy that he's been preaching this whole time in front of the same people. So they're saying, we got him. Then if he says, we can't stone her, what does that mean then? That he is going against the Jewish law. That he is siding with the Roman law and that he's breaking the Jewish law. He's in a catch-22. And this is where the scribes and the Pharisees said, they schemed, and they said, we're going to get him. There's nothing he can say. He's trapped. And we're going to get him, and we're going to get him arrested, and we're going to discredit who he says that he is. How is it that the enemy still thinks he's going to catch Jesus? Do they not know who this is? This is Jesus Christ, Messiah, God himself on earth. They were trying to trick him and bring him down, but instead of responding immediately, Jesus does something very interesting. I think this is fascinating. I mean, talk about a high-pressure moment. And Jesus takes a seat. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to react in high-pressure moments where you're like, everybody's coming at me, everybody's coming at me. And you just calmly go, yeah, I'm just going to go down here. And be like, what are you doing? Just going to draw on the dirt. Doesn't seem like it would honestly kind of work out for us if we invoke this method in a high-intensity environment. But which, which tells me there's something unique happening in this passage. There's something uncommon to the way that he responds. When he goes down, he starts writing in the dirt. So he stoops down. Starts writing with his finger. Then he stands up. Then he responds. He says, says a word. And then he stoops back down again, and he begins drawing again. So, the question that we all have is, what was he writing? What could he possibly have been writing in the ground that caused what happened to happen? Nobody knows. And I, I can't stand up here and say for sure, what he wrote because I wasn't there and the scripture doesn't say. Some claim, some scholars claim that it's possible that he was writing in this moment, he was writing with his finger the sins of the people in the crowd, which is why it started with the older working down to the, to the younger. I don't know. It's possible. But I think to understand another possible option that I think is a little more likely, you first have to understand what is the conversation that they're having? What's the, what's the bigger context that they're having? The bigger context of the conversation that they're having is that of the law, the Mosaic law. There's the conversation of like, this is what's on the table. Here's what's accused. Now, what do you say? Now, Exodus 31, 18, we begin the Bible study. Ten commandments. This is the... 
uh, table. This is the tables of stone. This is written uh, by the fingers of God. Exodus 31, 18 says this. When he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. These are the Ten Commandments given to Moses. John 8, it says that he stooped down and he wrote with on the ground with his finger. He's saying, oh, you want to talk about the law? Let's talk about the, the finger of the lawgiver. Exodus 34. Commandments, this is when the commandments were written the second time. This is after Moses shattered the commandments because of the rebellion of the people in Exodus chapter 32. So let's look at Exodus 34. Exodus 34, one says, the Lord said to Moses, come, cut, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Man, you'd really not want to be the guy that broke the 10 commandment tablets, right? You don't want to drop your own tablet. You definitely don't want to drop these tablets. <laughs> so, Tablet number one, tablet number one, God gives to the people. He says, these are the rules. The people break the rules. And in God's kindness and compassion, he writes the rules again and says, let me remind you the rules. Does this sound familiar? The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious, gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. So that's Exodus 34, six. So why would Jesus write them a second time? I mean, writes them the first time. These are the rules. They break the rules. Boom. I'm done with you. But God, but God, I'm going to write them a second time. Exodus 34, six. And why does he do it? What does the Bible say? The Lord is compassionate. He's a gracious God. Slow to anger and he's abounding in faithful love and truth. Aren't you grateful for second chances? For the time where you messed up and then you came back to God? I broke the law. I broke the rules. And, and God is gracious and he's compassionate and he loves you. So you, the rules, we break the rules. God writes a second time on the stones. Is it starting to sound a little bit familiar? Let's keep going. Deuteronomy 17, six through seven. This is in relation to the witnesses. So the people are bringing up the, the law. So let's talk about the law. Deuteronomy 17, six or seven says, the one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. Verse seven, the witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And after that, the hands of all the people, you must purge evil from you. So in Deuteronomy, it's saying that if you were to catch someone breaking the law, you as a witness were to be the one that cast the stone. So whenever we go back into the scene, we found the woman caught in adultery, which we'll talk about in a second, but no, no man we found caught in adultery. But there were witnesses that were there, and these witnesses that physically saw more than one we're supposed to be the first ones to throw the stones. 
This is, keep unpacking the story. It's going to keep making more sense. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single wit witness cannot rise against someone. One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whether that person has... Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, so we've established the fact that there was a law broken. We've established the fact that surely the people that are standing there who said we caught them in the act. Okay, in the law, we have more than one witness. We have multiple witnesses who saw this thing uh, to execute judgment. But it goes one step further, Deuteronomy 22, 22. Uh, this is talking about a man uh, found uh, laying with a woman. It says, if a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man and woman, uh, who had sex with the woman and the woman must die, you must purge the evil from Israel. So they found, they found them, they have the witnesses, and the witnesses are the first to cast the stones, and the judgment must be executed, and there must be death. This is a total trap. This is a setup. And God knows the law. God is the law. He, he knows the law. I mean, he, and he knows exactly where they're trying to get him. If you were to condemn someone of something of that which you um, are also guilty of, their condemnation comes on you. Back to the story. Where's the man? Where's the man? This is the woman caught in adultery. We have two witnesses. We're all here together. Where's the man? This is a set up in a trap that I believe was schemed before it even began. So the very thing they're trying to condemn the woman of is the very condemnation they're breaking as well. There is no man. It's thought that likely he was in on it from the very beginning. So God is basically saying in this story, okay, you among you without sin, go first. Because in the story itself is sin from them. And the condemnation that they're accusing of would come, on, come back on them. Death. What's the result for them too? Death. So he says, you without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they began to drop their stones. This is the mess. Now God's mercy. Verse 10, when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Listen closely to her response. No one Everybody say this together. Lord, no one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Remembering the, G the statement that Jesus said here, whenever he, the uh, accusers come forward and he stoops down and he, he writes on the ground, he stands up, the first among you cast the first stone, the first among you without sin cast the first stone. Who in this court hearing is the only one that could cast a stone? Jesus. Jesus is never the wrong answer, by the way, in church. I'm telling you, 10 out of 10, usually you'll land it somewhere around there. 
Jesus is the only one in this court hearing without sin. He's the only one that could throw a stone. But he doesn't. What does he do instead? Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? The one that knew her at her worst in the courtroom chose to love her the most. That was one exposed moment of her being caught in adultery, publicly humiliated, but do you think that's the only sin she's ever done? Committed? No, no, no. The one who knew her the best, in her best and her worst, in a moment of probably one of like the worst moments of her life, loved her the most. Where are your accusers? They're nowhere. He says, neither do I condemn you. Case dismissed. I mean, it's kind of hard to have a trial without witnesses. Where are your witnesses that say you did this? They're nowhere, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. What does this tell me? When you're afraid of being exposed, vulnerable before Jesus, when you're afraid of what people are going to think about you if they really knew who you were, but what if I come out and I'm publicly, publicly humiliated? What about the people that are going to say mean things about me? No, 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 no. Run to Jesus. I mean, get in the courtroom with Jesus as fast as you can. Witnesses, con, case, dismissed. Jesus stands as the, the final judge. But what does John 10, 10 say? The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life. Not just life but have it abundantly to the full. Accuser, accusers her of death. Those that were accusing her were already condemned in their death. And then the only one that showed the love and compassion that he did was Jesus, who was the only one who actually died so that they all might live. When the enemy is coming to take you out, run to Jesus. The enemy thought he had me, but Jesus said, you are mine. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Can we say that? To therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The enemy thought he had me, but Jesus said, no, you are mine. Here's the story. Jesus doesn't condemn the woman caught in the act, publicly exposed, he does not condemn her. And then he says, go and sin no more. It does not say, go and sin no more, then I will not condemn you. 
Jesus says, I accept you the way that you are. Now go do the right thing. And our response of the right thing is from our gratitude of Jesus saying, I don't condemn you either. Why do we want to love and serve the world? Why do we want to go around the nations and share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus rescued us. And there's other people around the world needing rescue too. But it's from a place, that obedience is from a place of gratitude. I can't help but give him praise when I remember who you are. I cannot help but give you thanks when I remember what you've done. I think the biggest challenge that we have in our Christian faith is forgetting that we were rescued from death and the salvation of Jesus Christ and living in the gratitude of obedience that we've been called to. The problem is you don't see yourself as the one publicly exposed. You're the one that's got it together. You're the Christian. We're the ones publicly exposed. We're the ones sinful. We're the ones that deserve condemnation. But Jesus offers his grace. This is the mercy of God. This is the, the definition of the mercy and compassion of God is this right here. Yeah, it's public. And yeah, you did the wrong thing. I forgive you. But why? Because I love you. This is my love. My love is grace. Grace is God's unconditional love. It's his unmerited favor over your life. What did you do to ever deserve Christ's love? For by grace you are saved through faith. Not by works so that nobody can boast. I didn't do anything to earn God's favor. But God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Imagine the woman who said, yeah, but I'll earn, their no, I'll earn the right to not be condemned. Jesus says, I've already, I've already not condemned you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have anything to prove here. You're not condemned. Now go, don't do it anymore. Go and sin no more. It's interesting how sometimes forgiveness and really, like, really forgiving people for things that they've done can somehow get misunderstood as you affirming what they've done. That's not what's happening here. Is that what Jesus did here? No, no, no. I think it's pretty clear what he did. Yeah, I don't condemn you either. Uh, don't go sin anymore. That's pretty clear. What you did was wrong. Don't do that anymore. Which I think is what Jesus is telling all of us. But it should never stop our forgiveness and our love of everyone around us. No matter what they've done. Forgiveness is always on the table. Mercy triumphs over justice. When the enemy tries to show up and accuse you and condemn you, Jesus says, I've already paid the price. Case dismissed, my blood has already paid the price. Death, Jesus' blood, his death, his burial, and resurrection has already paid the price. You are not condemned. For those that are in Christ Jesus are not condemned. This is good news for somebody. Then he goes on to say, 
in verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we know the lie, light is Jesus. We can have the light, and Mark 5 actually says, we are the light. It says in Mark 5, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus forgives the woman. I don't condemn you. Go, don't sin anymore. And while people are still standing around, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Where there is darkness, for the Pharisees, where there's lying and scheming, where you're breaking the law, for the adulterous woman who is just fully exposed, where there is darkness, I bring the light. I bring the truth of the law. I bring the truth of who I am. And when the light enters the room, grace enters the room with it. And it loves and it forgives. And it doesn't condemn. So if we are the light of the world, really practically, how about we follow Christ's example and we go out into the dark places and we shine the hope, shine the love, Shine the faith. We meet people where they are and we point them to Jesus. Feeling hopeless, run to Jesus. Feeling exposed, down, run to Jesus. He loves you. On this Mission Sunday, this is my hope and my prayer for all of us. How many of you know that the world is a messy place? And there's a lot of corners of the world that are very dark. We are called, called by God to take the light of Jesus into those dark places and to shine bright. For some of us, it's to commit to prayer for the world. For some of us, it's committed to give and to fund the missionaries that go out to some of these places, to fund some of the organizations that are here. For some of us, that's your calling. You're the light of the world here in your city, but you, you support the light going out to the ends of the earth. And for many of us, for many of us, I'm not even going to say some, for many, you're called to go. Called to go. Called to buy the plane ticket, to show up in the city, to share the good news, to bring the light into some of the darkest places. What the light avoids, darkness invades. I will not sit back and let the darkness invade, but I want to book the tickets. I want to go to the dark places. I want to be out in the city. I want to be out in the community. I want to be shining the light of Jesus. What are people going to find when we do that? God, Jesus. The hope of Jesus. The love of Jesus. Come on, what could be better than that? Can you imagine? When I was thinking about this being Mission Sunday, I couldn't help but think about this woman who had been rescued from an impossible situation. Can you imagine her on the ground, just imagining, I am not getting out of this one. This is it for me. But Jesus meets her in the middle of her impossible situation. 
As Pastor Shadonke says, Jesus is the impossibility specialist. This is what he does. He meets her in her impossible situation and he sets her free. Can you imagine the gratitude of this woman? The thankfulness. Man, if that was me, I'm following that guy to him the last breath. He is Lord. Whatever he says goes. Why? He rescued me from death. He's given me a new life. First, if anyone is in Christ, the old has gone. Behold, all things are made new. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to join us on a Sunday, head on over to pinewoodboulder.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. And if you'd like to be notified every time we post new content, then subscribe. And remember, just keep coming back.